across the galaxy. This is where conspiracy on the wild side meets the perspective of a lifetime. This is the Free Zone with your host, Freeman. Hello and welcome to the Free Zone. Well, today is the day of Flattoberfest. And uh, we're going to get through all of this and then go meet those freaky deaky people over there. Always a good time at Flattoberfest. Uh, even if you don't like the flat earth theories or any of that, I tell you, you will learn a lot. You will find some intriguing theories, but most of all, you will find some of the greatest people. I, I, you know, I'm just so impressed at the gathering that they have there. I thought when I went to Flattoberfest, which is right here in Greenville, South Carolina, at the Shriners Convention, uh, that I would be meeting a lot of locals around there and, and get to meet some of the people around me that have the same mindsets and whatnot. But no, <laughs> people come from all over the country to come to this. And I, I barely met anyone from actually from South Carolina itself. So, you know, that didn't really work out except for long distance friends. So that works. So, uh, that that's uh, that's this weekend, guys. So if you're not here, I'm sorry. I wish you could make it and we could all hang out. Uh, tonight is the karaoke fest. Uh, I've never actually done karaoke, so <laughs> I might just get up there and sing you a song. So if you're not in Greenville, South Carolina this weekend, well, you're going to miss that. So there it is. Uh, but yes, and on other news real quick, the whole PayPal debacle. Yes, uh, you can now come and subscribe to freemantv.com using credit or debit cards and go through the Stripe system. Uh, but of course, this is throwing in a little bit of a glitch for those of you that have already subscribed through PayPal. So I'm working through that as members come back and come through. And so if you are resubscribing to freemantv.com, please email me so I can sort this all out. We'll get it figured all out and then it'll be super easy. Uh, but this is me transitioning over. But you can always subscribe through PayPal. And but since everybody's leaving PayPal, now you can use credit card and debit card. But uh, you'll have to email me if you're already a subscriber and I'll, I'll get this all sorted out once we figure this all out. <laughs> Gosh. All right. So enough of that riffraff out of the way. Let's get to some wild theories and some new understandings as we start to explore the ancient world again of ancient Egypt. Today, we are talking with Jeffrey Drum. And he has an amazing book coming out now that is uh, The Land of Chem. Now, many of you may know that uh, Egypt was known as Chem with a K-H-E-M, Kemet. And uh, this is the, the roots of chemicals, the roots of chemistry, the roots of alchemy. And all of that stems right out of there. There have been many theories, uh, especially the idea of uh, the Great Pyramids being some sort of power station and um, intriguing theories running through that. But that never seemed to really jibe with me, just in the sense that, well, there's not a whole lot of signs of electricity going on in ancient Egypt. I mean, yeah, there was electroplated walls, but those could have been done with devices that didn't require an entire electrical system that needed a massive pyramid structure in order to generate the energy for everything. So uh, Jeffrey has gone over and visited Egypt. He's been deep into this, and he has an entirely new theory on, on what these great pyramids were built for and the entire complexes around the structure. And I think this stuff makes so much more sense. So I'm really excited to present to you Jeffrey Dum, Drum from The Land of Chem. And you can find him at thelandofchem.com. So 
Jeff, welcome I to the show. I appreciate the intro, man. That was good. You're like huh. a professional radio show host. Man, you know, you'd think I'd be doing this for a couple of decades. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, man, I appreciate you having me on, and you gave me a couple of good places to start. Um, so, again, my name is Jeff. Again, the title of my book is The Land of Chem, but it's spelled C-H-E-M. And, um, you know, Freeman, you gave me a good place to start with the play on words that is the title of my book. And it's the land of K-H-E-M is the original name of Egypt, like you mentioned. And that word refers to the black alluvial soil around the Nile River. And it is because of the fertility of that soil that the Egyptian civilization was predicated upon, not to mention the inundation of the Nile River, the annual flooding of the Nile River as well. However, um, K-H-E-M and the blackness also refers to a some stages of the alchemical process, the calcination and burning stage of the alchemical process. And it's also called the negredo, the black stage. So we have a tie-in between the original name of Egypt and, of course, alchemy. And K-H-E-M is the original etymology of our modern words for alchemy and chemistry. So, again, the title of my book is just a play on words for the original name of Egypt. And it's the land of chem, as in the land of chemistry. And the full title is An Initiation into Ancient Chemistry Through the Degrees of the Egyptian Pyramids. And it's a quote-unquote fictional story of a young man's initiation into an ancient society that was responsible for the construction and operation of the Egyptian pyramids. And during the degrees, he is instructed as to how each one of these structures operates. And it contains some very scientific information um, that I developed over the past, hell, it's been seven years and four trips to Egypt. And I've worked with a chemical engineer, a gentleman that has a PhD and a master's level um, professor of chemical engineering that helped me to v validate all of these theories before I published the book. So it's probably the most scientific and comprehensive theory out there about the Egyptian pyramids. And I'll get to your point about the, the great pyramid and the theories of electricity next. <clears throat> Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, wherever you want to go, you know, you got me thinking about just making us realize, first of all, the, the importance of chemistry in our lives. Like we don't really Correct. consider that a whole lot. We just go by our day by day. We've got our yeah. plastic everywhere, you know, all these different. Well, I was about to say, you know, look at look at every piece of material that is sitting in front of you, whether it's metal or plastic or rubber or paper or your computer or any of this stuff. It is all intimately involved with the science of chemistry and our entire civilization is predicated upon the production of chemicals on an industrial scale that happened during the modern industrial revolution. And depending on how deep we get in this conversation, I have some ties between the development of the modern industrial revolution, for example, a guy named Fritz Haber, and the development of the Haber process for the production of ammonia on the industrial scale, as related to the function of the Red Pyramid of Dashur, which I'm also proposing was making an ammonia solution for fertilizers, but in an ancient way inside these uh, chemical reactors or the chambers inside of the pyramids. Um, so to go back to kind of a, another point that you just made, so Egypt is the birthplace of chemistry. Even in the conventional archaeological and historical records, we know that the Egyptians were the first people to produce synthetic compounds. There's compound called Egyptian blue, which is calcium copper silicate, which is basically a blue paint that they were producing on an industrial scale. So large scale paint manufacturing, um, any sort of glass manufacturing on a large scale is also a chemical operation. They were also making cosmetics and pharmaceuticals and all of these sort of products that involve not only a knowledge of chemistry, but also of chemical processes to convert these um, you know, elements into actual products. 
So in my book, I propose that they were making a series of different chemicals within each one of the Egyptian pyramids and each one of the pyramids was making a different chemical. And that is kind of my biggest argument with the alternative theories about the Egyptian pyramids, a, that they only focus on the great pyramid. No other researcher has proposed a function for any of the other structures in Egypt, except for the great pyramid. And they imply that this is the only functional structure of all these pyramids. So the Great Pyramid is freaking making electricity and shooting laser beams out in outer space. Okay, well, that's great. Well, what are all the rest of the pyramids doing? There's two of them standing right beside it. And no one has even bothered to come up with an explanation for the other two structures on the Giza Plateau. So there's probably, you know, at a minimum, 100 different pyramids. I don't even know the total number. I think it's closer to 200 total pyramid structures in Egypt. But I focus on the main large ones that are on the western bank of the Nile River, which is the Step Pyramid, the Red and Bent Pyramids of Dashur. And then I go up to, in the final chapters of the book, we go to the Giza Plateau, talk about the Great Pyramid and the Central Pyramid of Giza. And the final chapter of the book culminates in Ireland, where I discuss the functions of the passage chamber structures of Ireland, like Newgrange and um, the passage chamber structures out at Carrowkeel. They're all basically configured the same way. And again, these things are reported to be burials as well. But if you look at the mythology of the ancient Irish and the Tua de Danon, this is a civilization that was known for its magic, quote unquote magic. And this is another theme that I present in the book and on my YouTube channel. So if you're listening, uh, so I also have a YouTube channel. It's the Land of Chem, C-H-E-M. And I think I'm up to 55 episodes. My most recent one was presenting a chemical analysis of metal saw blades. So they found microscopic metal particles on some of the cut surfaces from Egypt. And this team that I'm in contact with did a metallurgical analysis to determine what that those metals were. So we can talk about that. Um, I kind of forgot which direction I was going. I was talking about, I guess, the function of the pyramids and I guess the Great Pyramid. Um, so I guess what I've attempted to do in my book is to present a more comprehensive theory that addresses the function of all of these structures that is compatible with what we know about the dynastic Egyptian civilization. I don't think that these pyramids were built during the conventional time frame that is given for the dynastic civilization, let's say 3,500 BC to 2,500 BC. I don't think it was built in that time frame. I built think it was built several thousand years before. Um, I do think these things are post-cataclysmic, like after the proverbial great flood, and we can go into why that's the case. Um, you know, just kind of let me know if any of this is catching your interest that I can go in that direction. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You've got me fascinated. You know, I went to Kansas University for ancient architecture and the theories and stories that the professors give you there, uh, things like the bent pyramid. And they're like, well, they were trying to get it at a at a 52 degree angle, which is nearly impossible, even though the pyramids, the great pyramids are set up in such an impossible angle. Uh, that they had to finally just bend it over and you know come up with all these explanations as to why certain structures have these ways like it's just trial and error they're up there and trying to figure out how to make this so they they end up making a bent pyramid instead and, right uh yeah the amount of effort like that's that's the key thing here is is governments do not put in this amount of effort just for burial just for you know, in, in college and university, they were trying to say that there were these buildings called the, the Mastabas and that they were just dummy buildings that were supposed to throw off invading hordes. Like they just made dummy buildings uh, just for uh, 
it's just to lead them astray. You know, the theories that the archaeologists come up with, the theories, uh, these things just don't jive at all. 100%. And um, of course, you just gave me a great place to start. So, you know, the great, the pyramids of Egypt are infrastructure projects. And that is one of the main reasons that this civilization went through such the great effort to do all of this stuff is because these were making chemicals that were going to be for a massive benefit to the civilization overall, for the production of all of the goods that this civilization was going to consume, for the increase of agricultural production with the use of fertilizers the same way we do today, with the production of acids on the Giza Plateau, you're looking at metallurgy. So these things were absolutely critical for this ancient civilization. And I believe that the Egyptian pyramids were designed with the cumulative knowledge of a very ancient civilization that had survived the cataclysm at the end of the last ice age. And they reestablished. So I believe that the anti-Diluvian civilization <clears throat> inhabited North America. And there's a bunch of researchers that have proposed this kind of same theory that, and I think that North America is the proverbial Atlantis, right? The, the, the birthplace of this ancient, sophisticated civilization. Uh, at the end of the last ice age, cataclysm, you know, the comet or whatever strikes the ice cap covering Canada and North America, massive global flood, but there are refugees that flee from North America and they go all across the world. They go into Europe, they go into Africa, they go into South America, and they go into Asia. And this is where you see the mythology of the arrival of the creator gods. And they were not gods from outer space, but I believe that they were just this advanced group of human beings that had the knowledge of chemistry, physics, astrology, all of these very sophisticated sciences, whereon the onlooker would be able to perceive somebody that had that knowledge as being magic and possessing these godlike abilities. So that's where we get these stories of ancient magic, because again, they had chemistry and an onlooker for someone who's not initiated into the science of chemistry, watching chemical reactions where you can pour, you know, one clear liquid into another clear liquid and it turns to blue. Or if you're using metal sparks to create all of these crazy colors of green flame and blue flame and all of these spectacular chemical reactions, well, to an onlooker who has no idea that that's chemistry, you would appear to be a sorcerer or some sort of godlike magician. So again, that's where we get the mythology and this ancient civilization encapsulated all of that knowledge in the Egyptian pyramids as they attempted to reestablish their civilization across the globe. And that's why we see these pyramid structures being built all over the place. And I believe it actually started in ancient Ireland, where the first arrivals of these refugees arrived into the western coast of Ireland, Europe, and Spain, where we see these dolmen structures, these passage chamber structures, which even according to conventional history predate the construction of the Egyptian pyramids. And next step, we'll go into the Mastabas. <laughs> so that was a perfect intro there. <clears throat> go ahead and jump in. I see, I see you taking off the, yeah. you had anything you want to put in there, Freeman? Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea of them uh, fooling the public in these situations into believing in magic using uh, what would be high technology at that time we can go all the way forward thousands of years forward into rome and there was a character Heron, who had figured out how to make a steam engine in yep. ancient rome yep. and then pulled a pulley system basically the first computer system 
uh, he could then the priest could come out of the temple, light the fire, and that fire would ignite the steam engine, which would yep. magically open the front doors. And all of the people thought, you know, God was indoors because they could use this technology. Now, this is an ancient Rome, which is, you know, we're talking way in the future from where we're talking in Egypt here. So imagine what it would be like then. Uh, but it's so hard to know at this point, like the. The, it, I agree with you that there was a race that was technologically advanced. There was a major earth cataclysm that made them move and they had to rebuild these structures and, and reset a system out. And and so all the people in the desert, well, it wasn't even desert then, um, had to deal. Good, very yeah. good point. Yeah. So I also, in my research, uncovered a period in the Sahara, which was from approximately 8500 B.C., to about 3500 BC, the beginning of the dynastic period. And this is called the Saharan wet season. And there were prevalent rains, you know, really, really high levels of rainfall. And there was significant domestication of cattle in all of this arable farmland, which was actually west of the Nile River. So into what's now the Sahara Desert, there was tons of arable farmland out there. This also goes into my idea about the production of fertilizers, but let's get to the cattle production and the domestication of cattle during this time frame. So around 8500 BC, <clears throat> you see the Sahara transitioning from a desert into an agriculturally uh, viable area, and they're spreading out the domestication of cattle. And like you mentioned, the mastaba. So the Steppe Pyramid of Saqqara was the first large Egyptian pyramid that was constructed, and it was not originally a pyramid. It was originally a single level mastaba platform that had a single chamber underneath it. And this large rectangular chamber, thats a, it's a vertical rectangular chamber that goes down into the earth, has one inlet going in the north and one inlet going out the south. And this was the original configuration of that structure. And the first chapter of the book in my theory about the step pyramid describes the step pyramid being utilized to collect methane gas from a slurry that contained water, agricultural scrap material, and cattle manure. So this ties into directly to that time period where there was large scale domestication of cattle. This also ties in directly to the deification of cattle that we see across the ancient world. So in every civilization on the planet, the cow is a sacred animal. And of course, there's the astrological interpretation of the cow, of course, the constellation Taurus. But as you know, with all great esoteric symbols, there are dual layers of interpretation. And in my book and on my channel, I also go into different interpretations of these esoteric symbols from the dynastic Egyptians, specifically the apis bull and then the scarab beetle. So the apis bull and one of the reasons that cattle was such a deified animal is because of the production of methane gas, because they were making a sacred chemical utilizing the manure from this animal. So you can imagine for this ancient civilization the gas that was being produced by this animal would have justified the deification and, you know, certain treatment and, you know, glorification of these animals within the civilization. After the chemistry went underground, when this uh, Egyptian pyramids became inoperational, this happened during the desiccation of the Sahara, the redesiccation. When the rain stopped, everything started to dry out. There were tons of global cataclysms around that time period as well. Around 5,000 BC, we have the Black Sea flooding, tons of earthquakes, et cetera, that could have easily 
you know, disturb the operation of these structures. And then we see the beginning of the dynastic civilization where they're taking these symbols that pre-existed and they're just reinterpreting them with a more superficial interpretation that was intended for religious interpretation, spiritual interpretation. And that's typically what we see, generally speaking, with esoteric symbols anyway. There are levels of interpretation that are spiritual, religious, or moral interpretations, but then there are also deeper levels that are esoteric interpretations, and in this case, related to chemistry. So also the scarab beetle. So that's a dung rolling beetle that pushes a ball of shit around the desert floor. And to me, I never, it never really resonated with me how that became a symbol, a solar symbol, right? The symbol of the glorious rising and setting sun, Kepri, right? And the, according to the dynastic Egyptian religion, the scarab beetle is pushing the sun across the sky and it's the solar resurrection cycle and this symbol that represents death and rebirth every day. Well, again, it, it never really resonated to me that a, basically a, a desert cockroach pushing around a ball of shit was supposed to represent the sun. Well, if you look at that from the interpretation of chemistry, ancient chemistry and the production of methane gas, if you're using cattle manure to produce a slurry, what's the first step in producing methane? We well, have to collect the dung. And that is exactly the natural behavior of the scarab beetle that we see reflected in this esoteric symbol of the dung rolling beetle because the, the beetle collects the dung. That is the first step in the manufacturing of methane gas is collecting your reactants. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be a far better explanation than having a, a, a roll ball of, of dung become the sun and representing your God. Here's your God, a ball of shit. Uh, you know, no, it doesn't work. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's too soon to jump in and start understanding how these processes could have worked in these these massive structures and uh, then also, of course, that would fill in the details of the discoveries you've made with like these uh, different chemical reactions for the saw blades, the ideas of uh, what you found inside when you went inside the Red Pyramid or. Yep. yep. Uh, yeah. So um, let me figure out where to start here. It's difficult. This is like I don't often do these present or these uh, interviews without a presentation. Uh -huh. And the presentation is usually such a structured way for me to work through this. So let me say this. So my, first trip, so, my, so my first trip to Egypt was in 2017. And I was actually going to investigate the production of electricity. I was talking to a guy who had a channel about, you know, the Great Pyramid being designed to produce electricity and had a very reasonably scientific theory. And I was, I wanted to go for myself and see it in person. So I, I put my money where my mouth was and I, I booked a trip and I went. And I very quickly decided, like started to see that there were very few indications that there was electricity being produced, but there were tons of indications that chemistry was involved. For example, we went to a place called Abu Sir, and there is this conduit, a red quartzite carved conduit that leads into a collection bowl. And this is at a temple adjacent to one of the pyramids. And you may have seen this, this photo and my discovery of the original inlet shaft to that conduit, which leads to the collection bowl at Abu Sir. And nonetheless, that was a collection temple for the production of the chemical that was being produced within that pyramid. And as soon as I saw that, it immediately conflicted a with the production of electricity theory, because again, you don't have electricity flowing through a conduit into a collection bowl. It was some sort of fluid that was moving through that channel and they were collecting it in the collecting bowl.
And this collecting and, bowl had to be uh, something that they went, found the particular stone and and brought it because it had to be of a specific geologic. Correct. Trait, yeah. Right? So it's it's carved of red quartzite, which is, you know, it's it's a bit of an unusual type of stone. They took it from very, very far away from quarries that were hundreds of miles away. So they certainly went through, again, a significant amount of effort, whereas if it were you know, just a drainage shaft or a conduit for water or something like that, you wouldn't necessarily go through all that effort of carving it out of red quartzite when you could just make it out of limestone or out of the bedrock at the structure itself. You don't go through all that e effort to bring exotic materials for simple conduits, for simple drainage conduits. Let's and we also back. find these conduits carved into white calcite crystal. So there's a ton of like literal crystal white calcite clear crystal used in the structures and the construction of these monuments. And once we get to it, I'll talk about the electromagnetic field experiment. So we've, I've been working with people that have done chemical analyses from inside of these structures. I have done multiple experiments with an, a, a machine that produces an electromagnetic energy field. And we've tested the different configurations of the geology utilized at these structures because the geology is an integrated part as to how these structures operated. So back to the step pyramid and how this thing operated. So it all was operated upon water and water was utilized within these structures to either facilitate the movement of reactants into the structure or as a mechanism of operation in the production of certain physics-based reactions. And I'll get to that in regard to the function of the red pyramid. So in the step pyramid, basically they were making a slurry a water-based slurry of water, ground up agricultural material, and this cattle manure as your catalyst. And the cattle manure provides a bacterial anaerobic bacteria that digests the agricultural material. And in that process, it produces methane gas that bubbles out of the top of the slurry. And it was collected in a collection chamber above the main chamber within the step pyramid. So literally the slurry slides down the Northern shaft it fills up your primary digestion chamber, and then the digested material gets removed from the structure through the shaft leading out to the south. And this is the exact same configuration that we see in modern biogas digesters, where it's an inlet shaft leading into the primary digestion chamber, and then you have an outlet shaft where the digested material is removed from the container. So it's a very simple design. The chemistry is very, very simple. You basically have gas rising out of a liquid, so all you need to do is have a collection chamber on top of that. And that was the purpose of the original Mastaba platform was to seal that digestion chamber. And there would have been a valve on the top of that Mastaba where they could remove and collect that gas, you know, through a piping system or, you know, so for example, the ancient Chinese were collecting deposits of natural gas and they were using bamboo pipelines to transport methane gas for domestic purposes, for metallurgy, for heating and lighting, all these sort of applications. And that was something I discovered about the ancient Chinese I didn't know. But the dynastic Egyptians could have very well had a similar system for the collection of methane gas from this primary digestion chamber. So that brings us up to the Red Pyramid of Dashur. And so let's go ahead and talk about the dynastic symbols from the, or the interpretation of dynastic religion symbols. So the deity Ammon, right, which is the deity of fertility. Well, if you look at that from the etymology of the word ammonia, 
The word ammonia comes from salt amon, which is literally the salt of ammon. And that is where we get the etymology of the word ammonia literally comes from the Egyptian deity Amon. So Amon was not the deity of fertility, but he was the fertilizer. And what is ammonia? Well, it's a compound that is utilized predominantly for fertilizer production. So again, that is a dual layer esoteric symbol from the dynastic Egyptian religion that has multiple layers of interpretation. One is the superficial religious interpretation, and the second is the deeper interpretation as related to ancient chemistry. So the Red Pyramid of Dashur was taking this methane gas and it was converting it in a series of three reaction chambers into ammonia gas in the final chamber, which was dissolved into an aqueous solution and removed from the structure. So back to my trip in 2017. So we go to Egypt. I go to Abu Sir on the first day and you have to get special access to be able to go to Abu Sir. It's not a, a site that the public can go to. And I've been very fortunate enough to have special permission from the Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities, which is basically the Egyptian government that controls all tourism and research and study of the Egyptian pyramids. You ever heard of um, Zahi Hawass? And I was just about to say, thank God you didn't have to deal with Zahi. Well, was, it basically <laughs> is. It's, it's his organization. But we well, don't, he got we don't, fired. Well, we don't work. We don't. We wouldn't work with him directly either. It's basically just the ministry, you know. So we work with low-level bureaucrats, and he's basically the head or was the figurehead yeah. of that organization. Um, I followed Zahi's career for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, yeah, a, a super sketchy guy, super oh, yeah. sketchy. Yeah, and you can only imagine like what he has sitting on his living room counter. Y yeah. You know, like artifacts and shit. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I've always thought, you know, that guy has unlimited access to absolutely everything. And like, imagine just the trinkets. Um, so anyway, <laughs> so we have we have had special permission to go to Abu Sir several times. And this year was my fourth trip to Egypt. I just got back about a month ago. And we had once again, Abu Sir, Abu Ghraib. And I also had special permission to go down in the Osiris shaft which is a hundred feet underneath the Giza plateau. And you take these very, very sketchy metal ladders down these unbelievably deep shafts to get down into the Osiris shaft. Yeah. Um, if anybody wants to see that it was on the amazing race and all of the racers had the opportunity to climb down those very ladders and, and dig into that water pool that we'll describe here in the future. But if you want to see it other than Egypt live was, did they really, what, what did they do in the water down there? Uh, it was kind of a, you know, your fantasy of Indiana Jones. They had to go down and find a a pouch. Of, uh, you know, oh, a, oh, okay. So they hid of... something down in the water down there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's crystal clear blue. And of course, it, as, as serendipitous as it is, every time we go to enter one of these kind of off limit structures, the electricity goes off. Right. And so we always have to go in there in the dark with headlights on and stuff. And it is a, a very surreal and creepy experience going. It gets down hotter the, down there, doesn't it? Do what now? It gets hotter instead of cooler, right? Well, not particularly not in the so Osiris much. shaft. I found okay. it because it was it was so hot this time when we were there. Just so anytime you're out of the shade is like it's immediately cooler. Um, but I will Look. say it's very humid down there. I do remember sweating quite profusely while I was down in there. 
I'll um, share a quick story of yeah. uh, when when Zahi Hawass had discovered the tomb of Osiris, as they had termed it at that time, and then they later changed it to the Osiris shaft, which, of course, kind of goes to the phallic symbols related to because they, they didn't find anything down in there. Yeah, they, 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 they opened up this sarcophagus. This is supposed to be a thousand years older than the Giza Plateau, and it's going to be this big revolutionary moment. Oh, we're going to we're going to finally find a body in one of these things. And it was friggin empty. Yes, yes. And, uh, yeah. And, and to, to claim that it was the tomb of a god, you know, kind of made things a little confusing as well. Right. Like, were, were they really going to find Osiris in there? But one thing that happened, I can't remember the host of Egypt Live. I still have it on VHS. So I'm going to have to watch that. I should have pulled it out before this. But uh, the host, oh, guy, he was one of those daytime hosts, uh, guys like, anyway, um, he was he was all frightened to go down into the tomb, into the tomb of Osiris. And then he shaved to be on television. And Zahi just scolded him for having shaved to go down in there because of all the bacteria and things that could happen to you if you go into these with open abrasions. Sure. And so he didn't go down. Uh, they actually sent down the, uh, a lady that was in the crew instead of the actual host. So there's a lot of danger in what you're doing. Yeah. Well, once I also talk about what they found covering those containers, like so two weeks before I go, I'm doing some research on the Osiris shaft and I just kind of stumble across this other research of a chemical analysis that was taken from a metallic coating that covers those containers down. in. so there's three levels of the Osiris shaft. You go down the first level, there's nothing there. It's about a 20 foot ladder down the first level, nothing there. Then you go down about a 60 foot ladder to the second level. And man, dude, it was dark. It was as dark as you could possibly imagine. As soon as you turn your headlights off, there is, you can't see a damn thing. And there is a giant pit right next to you. And there's no safety anywhere. You know, there aren't harnesses right. or anything like that. So just cry, climbing down these things. You can't see. I didn't even look down. You can't see the bottom of it anyway. So I get down on the second level, pitch black in there. And I turn around and I know it's down there. And these two massive containers are the only ones that left in the six housings. Now, I'll get so off track and I'll talk all the whole time about the Osiris shaft because we found a lot of stuff, very cool stuff down in there. I and find this one fascinating. So please, I mean, we've yeah, got a couple a unique hours. Unique discovery. So I actually yeah. came back with um, uh, another several, what I would call legitimate archaeological discoveries from this expedition. The first being the discovery of the inlet shaft at Abu Sir to that red quartzite conduit. I have never seen that. Nobody even shows the collection bowl on any diagrams and no one ever mentions that original inlet shaft. So I can consider that at least an original discovery that I made. So there you're saying that the redstone that you found in front of that uh, complex then had a underground system that went all the way to the Great Pyramid or to the pyramid complex. Uh, yeah. So that that collection bowl, when you look at that picture, there's a, a little channel coming out right above it which is where the water flowed through that channel and landed into the collection bowl. Well, if you follow that channel back through the temple and it's about, I would say at least a football's football field length, um, you know, about hundred meters maybe or so um, distance from that collection bowl to the base of the pyramid and the inlet to that little channel, which runs under the, the floor of the temple. So the floor of the temple are these thick layers of black basalt and limestone. 
And that conduit probably runs like two feet underneath the floor of the temple, all the way from the inlet at the base of the pyramid, you know, a hundred, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's at least a couple hundred feet um, to that collection bowl. So that was kind of the first discovery. And then when we're down the Osiris shaft, we found these huge bars of iron oxide. So there's iron oxide deposits all over the sites in Egypt. There's huge ones in the core of the central pyramid. So we discovered iron oxide deposits in the core of the central pyramid because there's this primordial mound that the pyramid is built on top of. And then I also discovered the remnants, and this is my third archaeological discovery. So I skipped the Osiris shaft, huge bars of iron oxide running across the top of the chamber housings on the second level of the Osiris shaft. So you look up, there's these six housings, three on each side, and on the top of the chamber housing or the container housing, there it's, it's a deposit of iron oxide that is so thick and metallic looking, it just looks like a bar of iron running across the roof of these chambers that house the containers. And nobody ever talks about those either. And I believe that was an integrated part of the operation of that system. I'm not going to go into what I think the system was doing because I haven't even revealed that on my channel yet, but it was definitely a functional part of the entire Giza Plateau system. So anyway, they also discovered that metallic coating covering these containers. One of the containers is made of dacite, which is not found in any other structure in Egypt. And there are no veins of dacite anywhere in Egypt large enough to harvest a container of that size. So they imported this material from somewhere outside of the country to bring it in and move it 100 feet underneath the Giza Plateau. And they coated it with metal. And the research team that did the chemical analysis also took a Geiger counter down in there. And so they took the Geiger counter inside of the containers and it was significantly higher radioactivity levels than the ambient levels in the chamber. So again, you, those people that did that uh, amazing race, I wouldn't get in that water because there is no telling what was actually, you know, I have a theory as to what this thing was doing, but you don't want to be in that water. Not to mention all the bacteria and stuff that's in there. That is ancient, ancient water, like seven, you know, let's say fit possibly 15,000 years old. How, how far back do you want to push that? that's been sitting in there with a radioactive chain, uh, container down in there that again, I, if I, if my theory about what the function of that system is, you don't want to be anywhere near that stuff, but it was weird enough being down in there, but it's crystal clear blue water, man. It's like an underwater lagoon. And I get down there and I turn my headlight on and man, it was just trying to envision what these things would have been like in their original condition is an absolutely fascinating undertaking. And it's, it's, it's just so perplexing and mind-blowing to, to try to think what these things were originally like. So again, there would have been these pristine four pillars down underneath there. Now the water is like, you know, there's a bunch of debris and shit in there. And, you know, it's not as clean as it could be, which is a real shame that they don't keep it completely clean down there. Um, nor do they any of the pyramids or sites in general, but it is what it is. And that's more the government's fault than anybody else's. Um, so anyway, before I get too distracted talking about that and the Osiris shaft, so that was 2020 trip, 2022 trip a month ago, we went down in there and I have full length, like documentary style footage from inside of that entire expedition. I'm putting up on my YouTube channel I can't slowly, wait. but surely I have like 
well, more material that I can get out right now. So it's like just one thing at a time trying to get all this stuff out because I have so much footage from this year's expedition that I'm putting out on the YouTube channel. So back to the Red Pyramid of Dashur. So the Red Pyramid of Dashur is configured with these chambers that have a vaulted ceiling, a tiered vaulted ceiling. And in 2017, my first time in Egypt, I didn't even know that we were going to go inside the Red Pyramid. And we go down in there and there's chemical stains all over the walls inside the chambers. And it reeks of ammonia. I mean, it smells like pure chemical ammonia in there and it gets stronger and stronger. The smell is coming from the third chamber. The final chamber is where the intense smell of ammonia is emanating from. But, you know, the further you get inside the structure, the stronger it gets. So I'm walking in there and I'm like, what the hell is all this stuff? And I was like, you know, because I knew it was chemical staining. The conventional explanation is that the smell and the staining is from bats. But I immediately knew that that was nonsense. And then fast forward five years later, we get a chemical analysis from a Russian team called the Asita Project, who took samples from inside of the Red Pyramid back in 2010. And they did a chemical analysis of these samples. And it turns out it has absolutely nothing to do with bats whatsoever. And I knew that we can get to that here in just a second. But nonetheless, so the Red Pyramid is configured with these tiered upper vaults. And water was utilized within these chambers as a mechanism to compress the methane gas into the upper vault of these chambers. And the northern shaft leading down into the chamber, that's a pump shaft. And if you fill that thing with water and compress the water down into that shaft system, it's going to make the water inside of the chambers rise. And these chambers were configured with reduced volume toward the apex of the vault. Well, if you look at your physics equations in terms of the manipulation of temperature and pressure of gases, if you take a gas in a container and you compress it, the pressure of that gas is going to increase and the temperature of that gas is going to increase. And there were a couple of other factors involved in creating these reactions that I'm not going to get into. They're in the book. Well, partially in my first book and then coming up also in my second book. So nonetheless, it is the manipulation of these physics, basically the architectural engineering of these chambers is designed with specific physics manipulations that are going to increase the temperature and pressure of the gas to create a chemical reaction. So in the first chamber, it was converting the methane gas into hydrogen, and carbon monoxide, when the water level was lowered, those gases flowed through the connecting shaft into the second chamber where they were converted by con uh, reacting with the air in the chamber into hydrogen and nitrogen gases. And the carbon dioxide that's produced as a byproduct is dissolved into the water in the chamber, removed as a byproduct, the structure is refilled, and then everything is compressed in the final synthesis chamber where the hydrogen and nitrogen gases are converted using the same process and manipulation of physics to increase the temperature and pressure of that hydrogen and nitrogen gas. And there's another critical mechanism of operation that I'm leaving out here intentionally. But nonetheless, that reaction produces ammonia gas. That ammonia gas dissolves into the water inside of the chamber, which produces an aqueous ammonia solution, which is then extracted from the chamber. And this is the reason for the extrusions of strontium. So it turns out that the staining inside of these chambers is a material called strontium. 
And long story short, limestone is supposed to be calcium carbonate. It turns out that the stones inside of the red pyramid are predominantly strontium carbonate. So it's a very, very rare form of limestone. And there's also at least 30 different trace rare exotic metals, everything from thorium and uranium to barium, cesium, vanadium, chromium, you know, you name it, it's found in this chemical analysis. And the reason for these extrusions is because of the manipulation and fluctuation of the temperature and pressure inside of these chambers. So you have fluctuations between very high temperature and low temperatures and high pressure and low pressure in these chambers, which is heating the chambers and squeezing out these extrusions of strontium. So it looks like black drip marks all over these chambers. And again, back in 2017, I immediately knew that the explanation of bats was bat shit. And I knew it was chemicals. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I knew it was from chemical reaction of some sort. This is more sort of a, a side, not a side product, but an effect of the chemical reactions that's coming out of the limestone. But I do believe that the limestones were also coated with a compound, very similar to what we found down in the Osiris shaft. And I'm actually currently working on a video that's coming out for my next episode on the Land of Chem YouTube channel, Selfless Plug, um, which is the chemical analysis of the Red Pyramid Staining Part 2 where I go into explaining exactly what that coating compound is and where they got the materials from. Wow. Yeah. Amazing stuff that uh, just wouldn't have even occurred to, to most of us to think and, you know, to be able to get in there and actually smell the place and know the ammonia set up in there. But it sounds like everything that's in our chemtrails today. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, that's what because strontium and strontium and barium are, are used in that stuff now um in like cloud seeding and stuff like that yeah and whatever else they're doing to us with that yeah uh so, so yeah, now, yeah well, it, it turns out that a lot of that those trace elements they are in such small quantities that it's 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 a natural occurrence to find that stuff in certain deposits of limestone so there's kind of multiple layers of interpretation of this chemical analysis there's these background elements, which are all very, very small, minute quantities. Then you have very large quantity of strontium, which has replaced the calcium in the calcium carbonate lattice of the limestone. And then you have another group of metals that the concentration of these metals, I won't say what they are, and there's five of them. The concentration of these five metals is too high to be naturally occurring within the limestone. And it's certainly not a part of the limestone itself. It's not strontium. It's not supposed to be in there. So there's three different layers that you're looking at of that chemical analysis. And it took a long time for me to figure out exactly a long, long time and looking at a lot of research. Like when I say research, I'm not talking about watching YouTube videos. I'm talking about reading scholastic journal articles about the chemical micro element composition of limestone samples taken from all across the globe. And I'm looking at mining data and all of this, the incredible minutia of geological information that I have had to study to understand all of this stuff has been pretty overwhelming. And I'll be presenting the results of all of that in this upcoming chemical analysis part two. Um, but I will say this, all of my research is, is legitimately empirically based. And all of the stuff that you're hearing regarding the function of these structures 
has been verified by a gentleman that has a PhD in chemical engineering. He was a master's level professor that literally tore this whole thing to shreds and had me rebuild it piece by piece and explain every single little detail of what and why and how. And after all is said and done, he's in the forward of my book um, because he believed in my theory so much that he was willing to, well, he's retired. So it wasn't really sticking his neck online, but you know, this guy has academic credentials and also um, several patents in the field of chemical engineering for different machines that he's made. So it's um, very scientifically based. I've been through, again, it's like been 10 years that I've been working on this idea. Um, so that being said, what was the ammonia used for? Well, it was utilized for fertilizer, like I said before, because again, this was a predominantly agriculturally based civilization. And I also believe that they were involved in global commerce. So they were not only supplying what they needed in Egypt, but also they were trading with other civilizations, not necessarily other civilizations, but you know, different groups of humans on, on other continents. And we see like the cocaine mummies and all this kind of stuff. So we know that the Egyptians were interacting with the South Americans. There's also some evidence of minerals found in Egypt. For example, stibnite, which is uh, antimony oxide and an antimony containing mineral. And stibnite mostly comes from China. So there's certainly the potential that there was trade going on between Egypt and the people in the um, Chinese empire. And we also know that there was interaction between the Irish and the Egyptians because we found uh, Egyptian beads and Irish burials and all sorts of Irish sort of resembling memorabilia within the ancient Irish culture. So that was kind of the justification for all these chemicals. Yeah, we're really about to learn the effects of the lack of fertilizer as the war with Ukraine and World War Three pulls on. And we are going to lose access to all of Russia's fertilizer. And we will see how dramatic an effect this, you know, if you think this is just, you know, simple fertilizer plant, uh, you know, we're going to learn really soon here how much of an effect that has on the world economy, on our lives, on trying to produce food around the world, as we are going to be locked out of the fertilizer coming out of Russia, which was our main source. So imagine if you were the main source, like Egypt was at that time, to, to produce all of this for everyone. I mean, there's a major control in Putin holding the fertilizer, and it is being used as warfare at this point. So uh, yes, it it's it's incredibly important to produce these chemicals. So now you want to switch over to the members only content because I'm about to drop a major conspiracy theory on you. Absolutely. Let's lock <laughs> this down. Uh, let's wrap this up. And... I think that was about right. That was about an hour, right? On the first part. Oh, yeah, we're doing good. Hell yeah. yeah. Dude. Uh, so let's give a lot of love to Steve Mercer, the producer, associate producer here at FreemanTV.com because Steve deserves it. Uh, he is currently traveling all over, uh, visiting great people in Texas and here other places and making his way here to Flatoberfest in that long drive. So much love to Steve. If you need to uh, give Steve any any knowledge, want to share any guest ideas or any thoughts or anything, it's producer Steve at FreemanTV.com. Uh, help us get this guest list going. We have a great guest list coming for you. So it's a really good time to subscribe. And honestly, you know, I'm working through the Stripe system as best as I can. So I need some more input from you guys. Hopefully some of you will be in this transition, although it's a pain in the butt. 
and that will help me figure this all out so that we can make it easier for everyone after you. So uh, working through that whole system. But yes, guys, thank you so much for two to get here every week and coming in. I hope you're letting people know, hey, the free zone, even though he's been banned on YouTube, he's still going. You know, let him know that the free zone is there on every podcast player out there. You just put it in the search and boom, there it is. You get the free hour. Everything's good. Or you come over to freemantv.com and subscribe and get the full shows. Uh, we got to do that to keep this on the air. And it seems like it's going to get harder and harder to get this truth out to you guys. But I love this kind of stuff. And I love the fact that we can talk with people like Jeffrey Drum. So you want to get this book. Go check this out, guys. The land of And that's C-H-E-M as in chemical, not as in chem of Egypt. And uh, man, we're, we're about to get into some wild theories, too, because I had a few things I wanted to throw at Jeff, too. So let's do uh, it. It's going to be a good time. So I hope you guys will come on over and I hope you'll pick up uh, the land of chem and check this theory out because this this makes way more sense than most of the other things. And we're going to get into some of the other things that I've looked at and said, no, nah, I don't think this works. But yeah, Jeff, uh, thank you so much. Anything else you want to promote, add or? Yeah. So also my YouTube channel, which is also handle the land of chem, C-H-E-M. Um, I have books on my website. I have awesome merch on my website, thelandofchem.com. I also always say, and I forget, follow me on Instagram. I have like the smallest following on all of Instagram, but it's like badass content. I put exclusive tour photos and videos. Um, so I've been traveling with Yusuf Awion from the Kemet School of Ancient Mysticism. I guarantee you've heard him or seen him. If you're at all interested in ancient Egypt, you know about this guy. His dad was one of the predominant and um, like premier tour guides through the 60s and 80s. Um, he's actually been to the White House several times or one time he was riding to the White House. Um, so Yusuf is like a legacy tour guide and I have all of our content on my Instagram, also at the land of Kem and uh, Freeman. I appreciate having me on brother. Absolutely. Yeah, guys, stay tuned because uh, if you remember, we got some good stuff coming your way. I definitely want to get a little bit into Akhenaten, his children and how that all played out. Uh, just a, something that's been digging out my brain. Didn't even know that it was going to come up in this story. But yeah, you don't want to miss out. So come on over to freemantv.com and subscribe. And uh, yeah, we'll see you all next week. Mm -hmm.